Chapter 3 of The Wailing Asteroid by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wailing Asteroid, Chapter 3 In retrospect, events moved much faster than reason would suggest. The first signal from space had been received on a Friday. At that time, when the first flutings were picked up by a tape recorder on Kalua, the world had settled down to await the logical consequences of its history. It was not a comfortable settling down, because the consequences were not likely to be pleasant. Earth was beginning to be crowded, and there were whole nations whose populations labored bitterly with no hope of more than subsistence during their lifetime, and left a legacy of equal labor and scarcer food for their descendants. There were hydrogen bombs and good intentions, and politics and a yearning for peace, and practically all individual men felt helpless before a seemingly merciless march of ominous events. At that time, too, nearly everybody worked for somebody else, and a large part of the employed population justified its existence by the length of time spent at its place of employment. Nobody worried about what he did there. In the richer nations, Everybody wanted all the rewards earned for them by generations gone by, but nobody was concerned about leaving his children better off. An increasingly smaller number of people were willing to take responsibility for keeping things going. There had been a time when half of Earth fought valiantly to make the world safe for democracy. Now, in the richer nations, most men seemed to believe that the world had been made safe for a four-card flush which was the hand they'd been dealt and which nobody tried to better. Then the signals came from space. They called for a showdown, and very few people were prepared for it. Eminent men were called on to take command and arrange suitable measures. They immediately acted as eminent men so often do. They took action to retain their eminence. Their first instinct was caution. When a man is important enough, it does not matter if he never does anything. It is only required of him that he do nothing wrong. Eminent figures all over the world prepared to do nothing wrong. They were not so concerned to do anything right. Burke, however, was not important enough to mind making a mistake or two. And there were other non-famous people to whom the extraterrestrial sounds suggested action instead of precautions. Mostly they were engineers with no reputations to lose. They'd scrabbled together makeshift equipment, ignored official channels, and in four days, Friday to Monday, they had eight hundred kilowatts ready to fling out toward emptiness in response to the signal from M-387. The transmission they'd sent out was five minutes long. It began with a retransmission of part of the message Earth had received. This plainly identified the signal from Earth as a response to the cryptic flutings. Then there were hummings. One dot, two dots, three, and so on. These hummings assured whoever or whatever was out yonder that the inhabitants of Earth could count. Then it was demonstrated that two dots plus two dots were known to equal four dots, and that four and four added up to eight. The inhabitants of Earth could add. There followed the doubtless interesting news that two and two and two and two was eight. Humanity could multiply. Arithmetic, in fact, filled up three minutes of the 800-kilowatt beam signal. Then a hearty human voice, the president of a great university, said warmly, 
Greetings from Earth. We hope for splendid things from this opening of communication with another race whose technical achievements fill us with admiration." More flutings repeated that the Earth signal was intended for whoever or whatever used flute-like sounds for signaling purposes, and the message came to an end with an arch comment from the University President, "'We hope you'll answer.' When this elaborate hodgepodge had been flung out to immensity, the prominent persons who devised it shook hands with each other. They were confident that if intelligent beings did exist, where the mournful musical notes came from, interplanetary or interstellar communication could be said to have begun. The engineers who'd sweated together the equipment simply hoped their signal would reach its target. It did. It went out just after the end of a reception of a five-minute broadcast from M-387. Seventy-nine minutes should have passed before any other sound from M-387. But an answer came much more quickly than that. In thirty-four minutes, five and three-tenths seconds, a new signal came from beyond the sky. It came in a rush. It came from the transmitter out in orbit far beyond Mars. It came with the same volume. It started with an entirely new grouping of the piping tones. There was a specific crispness in their transmission, as if a different individual handled the transmitter keys. The flutings went on for three minutes, then were replaced by entirely new sounds. These were sharp, distinct, crackling noises. A last sequence of the opening flutings and the message ended abruptly. But silence did not follow. Instead, a steady, sonorous, rhythmic series of beeping noises began and kept on interminably. They were remarkably like the directional signals of an airway beacon. When the news broadcasts of the United States reported the matter, the beeping sounds were still coming in. And they continued to come in for seventy-nine minutes. Then they broke off and the new transmission was repeated. The original message was no longer sent. Robot transmitter or no robot transmitter, the first message had been transmitted at regular intervals for something like seventy-six hours. And then, instantly on receipt of the beginning of an answer, a new broadcast took its place. The reaction had been immediate. The distance between M-387 and Earth could be computed exactly. The time needed for the Earth signal to arrive was known exactly. And the instant, the very instant, the first sound from Earth reached M-387, the second message had begun. There was no pause to receive all the Earth greeting or even part of it. The reaction was immediate and automatic. Automatic. That was the significant thing. The new message was already prepared when the Earth signal arrived. It was set up to be transmitted on receipt of the earliest possible proof that it would be received. The effect of this rapid response was one of tremendous urgency, or absolute arrogance. The implication was that what Earth had to say was unimportant. The Earth signal had not been listened to. Instead, Earth was told something. Something crisp and arbitrary. Maybe there could be amiable chit-chat later on, but Earth must listen first. The beepings could not be anything but a guide, a directional indicator to be followed to M-387. The message, now changed, might amount to an offer of friendship, but it also could be a command. If it were a command, the implications were horrifying. At the moment of first release, 
the news had only a limited effect. Most of Europe was asleep, and much of Asia had not waked up yet. But the United States was up and stirring. The news went to every corner of the nation with the speed of light. Radio stations stopped all other transmissions to announce the frightening event. It is of record that four television stations on the North American continent actually broke into filmed commercials to announce that M-387 had made a response to the signal from Earth. Never before in history had a paid advertisement been thrust aside for news. In the United States, then, there was agitation, apprehension, indignation, and panic. Perhaps the only place where anything like calmness remained was inside and outside the office of Burke Development, Inc., where Burke felt a singular relief at this evidence that he wasn't as much of a fool as he feared. Well, he thought, it looks like there is something or somebody out there. If I'd been sure about it earlier, but it probably wasn't time. What does this mean? asked Sandy. This horrible spell of around-the-clock working. Are you still trying to do something about the space signals?" "'Listen, Sandy,' said Burke. "'I've been ashamed of that crazy dream of mine all my life. I've thought it was proof there was something wrong with me. I'll still have to keep it secret, or nice men in white coats will come and get me. But I'm going to do what all enterprising young men are advised to do dream gently, and then try to realize my dream. It's quite impossible, and it'll bankrupt me, but I think I'm going to have fun." He grinned at the two sisters as he led them firmly to Sandy's car. "'Shoo,' he said pleasantly. "'You'd better go home now. I'll be leaving in minutes, heading for Schenectady first. I need some electrical stuff. Then I'll go elsewhere. There'll be some shipments arriving, Sandy. Take care of them for me, will you?" He closed the car door and waved, still grinning. Pam fumed and started the motor. Moments later their car trundled down the highway toward town. Sandy clenched her fists. "'What can you do with a man like that?' she demanded. "'Why do I bother with him?' "'Shall I answer?' asked Pam. "'Or shall I be discreetly sympathetic? I wouldn't want him. But, unfortunately, if you do—" "'I know,' said Sandy forlornly. "'I know, damn it!' Burke was not thinking of either of them then. He opened the office safe, put the six-inch object inside, and took out his checkbook. Then he locked up, got into his car, and headed away from the plant and the town he'd been brought up in. He was unshaven and uncombed, and this was an inappropriate time to start out on a drive of some hundreds of miles, but it was a pleasing sensation to know that a job had turned up that nobody else would even know how to start to work on. He drove very cheerfully to a cross-country expressway and turned onto it. He settled down at once to drive and to think. He drove practically all night. Shortly after sunrise, he stopped to buy a razor and brush and comb and to make himself presentable. He was the first customer on hand when a Schenectady firm specializing in electronic apparatus for seagoing ships opened up for business. He ordered certain equipment from a list he'd written on an envelope while eating breakfast. The morning papers, naturally, were full of the story of the answer to the earth signal sent out to M-387. The morning comedians made jokes about it, 
and in every one of the business offices Burke visited there was some mention of it. He listened, but had nothing to say. The oddity of his purchases caused no remark. His was a small firm, but a man working in research and development needs strange stuff sometimes. He ordered two radar units to be modified in a particular fashion. Air circulation pumps of highly specialized design to be changed in this respect and that. He had trouble finding the electric generators he wanted and had to pay heavily for alterations in them, and even more heavily for a promise of delivery in days instead of weeks. He bought a self-contained diving suit. He was busy for three days, buying things by day, designing by night, and finding out new things to order. On the second day, United States counterintelligence reported that the Russians were trying to signal M-387 on their own. An American satellite picked up the broadcast. The Russians denied it, and continued to try. Burke made arrangements for the delivery of aluminum alloy bars, rods, girders, and plates, for a plaster of Paris in ton lots, for closed-circuit television equipment. Once he called Sandy to give her an order to be filled locally. It was lumber, mostly slender strips of lathing, to be on hand when he returned. "'All kinds of material is turning up,' said Sandy. "'There have been six deliveries this morning. I'm signing receipts for it because I don't know what else to do. But will you please give me copies of the orders you've placed so I can check what arrives?' "'I'll put them in the mail, air mail,' promised Burke. "'But only six deliveries? There ought to be dozens.' Get after these people on long distance, will you?" And he gave her a list of names. Burke said suddenly, "'I had that dream again last night. Twice in a week. That's unusual.' "'No comment,' Sandy said. She hung up and Burke was taken aback. But there was hardly any comment she could make. Burke himself had no illusion that he would ever come to a place where there were two moons in the sky and trees with ribbon-like leaves and if he did, unthinkable as that might be, he could not imagine finding the person for whom he felt such agonized anxiety. The dream, recurrent, fantastic, or what not, simply could not represent a reality of the past, present, or future. Such things don't happen. But Burke continued to be moved much more by the emotional urge of the repeated experience than by intellectual curiosity about his having dreamed repeatedly of signals exactly like those from space, long before such signals ever were. He made ready to try to do something about those signals. And, all reason to the contrary notwithstanding, to him they meant a world with two moons and strange vegetation, and such emotion as nothing on earth had ever quite stirred up, though he felt pretty deeply about Sandy at that. So he went intently from one supplier of exotic equipment to another, spending what money he had for an impossibility. Impossible because asteroid M-387 was not over two miles through at its largest dimension, and therefore could not possibly have an atmosphere and certainly not trees, and it could not own even a single moon. He spent one day at a small yachting port with a man for whom he'd worked out a special process of fiberglass yacht construction. Through that process, Holmes' yachts could be owned by people who weren't millionaires. Holmes was a large, languid, sunburned individual who built yachts because he liked them. He had much respect for Burke, 
even after Burke asked his help and explained what for. But that was the day the Russians launched an unmanned space probe heading toward M-387. That development may have influenced Holmes to do as Burke asked. Later on, it transpired that the probe originally had been designed and built as a cargo carrier to take heavy loads to Earth's moon. The Russian Space Service had planned to present the rest of Earth with a fait accompli even more startling than the first Sputnik. They had intended to send a fleet of drone cargo rockets to the moon and then assemble them into a colony. Broadcasts would triumphantly explain that the Soviet social system was responsible for another technical achievement. But to get a man out to M-387 was now so much more important a propaganda device that the cargo carriers were converted into fuel tankers and the first sent aloft. At ten thousand miles up, when the third booster stage should have given it a decisive thrust, one of the probe's rocket engines misfired. The space probe tilted, veered wildly from its course, and went on accelerating splendidly toward nowhere. And still the steady, urgent beeping sounds continued to come to earth, with every seventy-nine minutes a broadcast containing one section of crackling sounds and a tone of extremist urgency. The day after the probe's ineffectual departure, Bert got back to his plant. He brought Holmes with him. Together they looked over the accumulated material for Burke's enterprise and began to sort out the truckloads of plaster of Paris, masses of punched sheet aluminum, girders, rods, beams of shining metal, cased dynamos, crated pumps, tanks, and elaborately padded objects whose purpose was not immediately clear. Sandy was overwhelmed by the job of inventorying, indexing, and otherwise making the material available for use as desired. There were bales of fluffy white cloth, and drums and drums of liquids, which insisted on leaking, and smelled very badly when they did. But Burke found some items not yet on hand, and fretted, so Sandy brought her sister Pam into the office to add to the office force. Sandy and Pam worked quite as hard in the office as Burke and Holmes in the construction shed. They telephoned protests at delays, verified shipments, scolded shipping clerks, argued with transportation system expediters, wrote letters, answered letters, compared invoices with orders, sternly battled with negligence and delays of all kinds, and, in between, kept the books of Burke Development Inc. up to date, so that, at any instant, Burke could find out how much money he'd spent and how little remained. The two girls in the office were necessary to the operations, which at first centered in the construction shed, but shortly began to show up outside. Four workmen arrived from Holmes' yacht shipyard. They looked at blueprints and drawings made by Holmes and Burke together, regarded with pained expressions the material they were to use, and set to work. This was on the day the second Russian space probe lifted from somewhere in the Caucasus Mountains at 1.10 a.m. local time. The second probe did not veer off its proper line. Its four boosters fired at appropriate intervals and it went streaking off toward emptiness almost straight away from the sun. It left behind it a thin, whining transmission which was not at all like the beepings of the asteroid transmitter. In two days a framework of struts and laths took form outside the construction shed. It looked more like a mock-up of a radio telescope than anything else, but it was smaller and had a different shape. It was an improbable-looking bowl. Under home supervision, dozens of sacks of plaster of Paris found their way into it, 
coating it roughly on the outside and very smoothly within. It was then lined tenderly with carefully cut sections of fluffy cloth, with bars and beams and girders placed between the layers. Then reeking drums of liquid were moved to the working site, and their contents saturated the glass wool. The smell was awful, so the workmen knocked off for a day until it diminished. But Sandy and Pam continued to expostulate with shippers by long distance, type letters threatening lawsuits if orders were not filled immediately, and once found that items Burke indignantly demanded had come in, and Holmes had carted them off and used them without notifying anybody. That was the day Pam threatened to resign. "'It looks like a pudding,' grumbled Pam, after Sandy had mollified her and Burke had apologized for having made her fight needlessly with two transport lines, a shipping department, and a vice-president in charge of sales. "'And they act like it was a baby.' "'It'll be a ship,' said Sandy. "'You know what kind.' "'I'll believe it when I see it,' said Pam. Then she demanded indignantly, "'Has Joe looked at you twice since this nonsense started?' "'No,' admitted Sandy. "'He works all the time. At night he has a receiver tuned to the beepings to make sure he knows if the broadcast changes again. The Russians are still trying to make a two-way contact. But the broadcast just keeps on, ignoring everybody.' Then she said, "'Anyhow, Joe's going to feel awful if it doesn't work. I've got to be around to pick up the pieces of his vanity and put them together again.' "'Huh,' said Pam catch me doing that." At just that moment Holmes came into the office with a finger dripping blood. He had been supervising and at the same time assisting in the building of an additional section of laths and struts, and he was annoyed with himself for the small injury which interfered with his work. Pam did the bandaging. She cooed over him distressedly, and had him grinning before the dressing was finished. He went back to work very much pleased with himself. I said Sandy, wouldn't act like you just did. "'Sister, darling,' said Pam, "'I won't cramp your act. Don't you criticize mine. That large, wounded character is as attractive as anything I've seen in months.' "'But I feel,' said Sandy, "'as if I hadn't seen Joe in years.' Their viewpoint was strictly feminine and geared to female ideas and aspirations. But, in fact, they were probably as satisfied as two girls could be. They were on the sidelines of interesting happenings which were being prepared by interesting men. They were useful enough to the enterprise to belong to it without doing anything outstanding enough to amount to rivalry with the men. From a girl's standpoint, it wasn't at all bad. But neither Burke nor Holmes even faintly guessed at the appraisal of their work by Sandy and Pam. To Holmes, the task was fascinating because it was a ship he was building. It was not a beautiful object, to be sure. If the lath and plaster mold were removed, the thing inside it would look rather like an obese small whale. There were recesses in its rotund sides in which distinctly eccentric apparatus appeared. Its interior was even more curious. And still, it was a ship. Holmes found deep satisfaction in fitting its interior parts into place. It was like, but not the same as, equipping a small vessel with fathometers, radars, direction finders, air conditioners, stoves, galleys, heads, and refrigerators without getting it crowded. 
To be sure, no seagoing ship would have sections of hydroponic wall garden installed, nor would an auxiliary schooner normally have six pairs of closed-circuit television cameras placed outside for a view in each and every direction. This ship had such apparatus. But to Holmes the building of what Burke had designed was an extremely attractive task. Burke had less fun. He'd set up a huge metal lathe in the construction shed, and he labored at carving out of a specially built-up Swedish iron shaft a series of twenty-odd magnet cores like the triple unit he considered successful. Each of the peculiar shapes had to be carved out of the shaft, and all had to remain part of the shaft when completed. Then each had to be wound with magnet wire, coated with plastic as it was wound. Then a bronze tube had to be formed over all, with no play of any sort anywhere. The task required the workmanship of a jeweler and the patience of Job, and Burke had had enough experience with new constructions to be acutely doubtful that this would be right when it was done. The Russians sent up a third space probe, aimed at asteroid M387. It functioned perfectly. Three days later, a fourth. Three days later still, a fifth. Their aim with the fifth was not too good. The beeping sounds continued to come in from space. The second message remained the same, but the crackling sounds changed. There was a systematic and consistent variation in what they apparently had to say. MIT discovered the modification. When its report reached the newspapers, Sandy invaded the construction shed to show Burke the news account. Oil smeared and harassed, he stopped work to read it. "'Hell,' he said querulously, "'I should have had somebody watching for this. I figured the second broadcast was telling us something that would change as time went on. They're telemetering something to us. I guess there's an emergency or an ultimatum in the works, and this is telling how fast it's coming to a crisis. But I'm already working as fast as I can." "'Some cases marked instruments came this morning,' Sandy told him. They're the solidest shipping cases I ever saw. And the bills for them." "'Wire Keller,' said Burke. Tell him they're here and to come along." "'Who's Keller?' asked Sandy. And what's his address?" Burke blew up unreasonably, and Sandy said, "'I quit!' In seconds he had apologized and assured Sandy that she was quite right and that he was an idiot. Of course she couldn't know who Keller was. Keller was the man who would install the instruments in the ship outside. Burke gave her his address. Sandy was not appeased. Burke ran a grimy hand despairingly through his hair. "'Sandy,' he protested, "'bear with me just a little while. In just a few more days this thing will be finished, and I'll know whether I'm the prize imbecile of history or whether I've actually managed to do something worthwhile. Bear with me, like you would with a half-wit or a delinquent child or something. Please, Sandy.' She turned her back on him and walked out of the shed, but she didn't quit. Burke turned back to his work. The Russians sent up another probe. It went off course. There were now six unmanned Russian probes in emptiness, of which four were lined up reasonably well along the route which a manned probe, if one were sent up, should ultimately travel. The advance probes formed an ingenious approach to the problem of getting a man farther out in space than any man had been before, but it was horribly risky but apparently the Russians could afford to take such risks. 
the Americans couldn't. They had a settled policy of spending a dollar instead of a man. It was humanitarian, but it had one drawback. There was a tendency to keep on spending dollars and not ever let a man take a chance. The Russians had four fuel-carrying drones in line out in space. If a ship could grapple them in turn and refuel, it might make the journey to M-387 in eight or ten weeks instead of as many months. But it was not easy to imagine such a success, and as for getting back... The beeping sounds continued to be received by Earth. A short man with thin hair arrived at Burke Development, Inc. His name was Keller, and his expression was pleasant enough, but he was so sparing of words as to seem almost speechless. Sandy watched as he unpacked the instruments in the massive shipping cases. The instruments themselves were meaningless to her. They had dials, and some had gongs, and one or two had unintelligible things printed on paper strips. At least one in the last category was a computer. Keller unpacked them reverently and made sure that not a speck of dust contaminated any one. When he carried them out to the hull, still concealed by the lath-and-plaster exterior mold, he walked with the solemn care of a man bearing treasure. That day Sandy saw him talking to Burke. Burke spoke, and Keller smiled and nodded. Only once did he open his mouth to say something. Then he could not have said more than four words. He went happily back to his instruments. The next day Burke made what was intended to be a low-power test of the long iron bar he'd machined so painstakingly, and wound so carefully before enclosing it in the bronze outer case. He'd worked on it for more than two weeks. He prepared the test very carefully. The six-inch test model had lain on a workbench and had been energized through a momentary contact switch. The full-scale specimen was clamped in a great metal lathe, which in turn was shackled with half-inch steel cable to the foundations of the construction shed. If the pseudo-magnet flew anywhere this time, it would have to break through a tremendous restraining force. The switch was discarded. A condenser would discharge through the windings via a rectifier. There would be a single damped surge of current of infinitesimal duration. Holmes passed on the news. He got along very well with Pam these days. At first he'd been completely careless of his appearance. Then Pam took measures to distract him from total absorption in the construction job, and he responded. Nowadays he tended to work in coveralls and change into more formal attire before approaching the office. Sandy came upon him polishing his shoes once, and she told Pam. Pam beamed. Now he came lounging into the office and said amiably, the moment of truth has arrived, or will in minutes." Sandy looked anxious. Pam said, "'Is that an invitation to look on at the kill?' "'Burke's going to turn juice into the thing he's been winding by hand and jittering over. He's worried. He could think of seven thousand reasons why it shouldn't work. But if it doesn't, he'll be a pretty sick man.' He glanced at Sandy. I think he could do with somebody to hold his hand at the critical moment. We'll go, said Sandy. Pam got up from her desk. She won't hold his hand, she explained to Holmes, but she'll be there in case there are some pieces to be picked up of him. 
they went across the open space to the construction shed. It was a perfectly commonplace morning. The very temporary mass of lumber and laths and plaster, forming a mold for something unseen inside, was the only unusual thing in sight. There were deep truck tracks by the shed. One of the workmen came out of the airlock door on the bottom of the mold and lighted a cigarette. "'No smoking inside,' said Holmes. "'We're cementing things in place with plastic.' Sandy did not hear. She was the first to enter the shed. Burke was moving around the object he'd worked so long to make. It now appeared to be simply a piece of bronze pipe some fifteen feet long and eight inches in diameter, with closed ends. It lay in the bed of an oversized metal lathe, which was anchored in place by cables. Burke took a painstaking reading of the resistance of a pair of red wires, then of white ones, and then of black rubber ones, which stuck out of one end of the pipe. "'The audience is here,' said Holmes. Burke nodded. He said, almost apologetically, "'I'm putting in a minimum of power. Maybe nothing will happen. It's pretty silly.' Sandy's hands twisted one within the other when he turned his back to her. He made connections, took a deep breath, and said in a strained voice, "'Here goes.' He flipped a switch. There was a cracking sound. It was horribly loud. There was a crash. Bricks began to fall. The end of the metal lathe bounced out of a corner. Steel cables gave off high-pitched musical notes which went down in tone as the stress in them slackened. One end of the lathe was gone, snapped off, broken, flung away into a corner. There was a hole in the brick wall over a foot in diameter. The fifteen-foot object was gone, but they heard a high-pitched shrilling noise which faded away into the distance. That afternoon the Russians announced that their manned space probe had taken off for asteroid M-387. Naturally they delayed the announcement until they were satisfied that the launching had gone well. When they made their announcement the probe was fifty thousand miles out. They had received a message from its pilot, and they predicted that the probe would land on M-387 in a matter of seven weeks. In a remote small corner of the afternoon newspapers there was an item saying that a meteorite had fallen in a ploughed field some thirty miles from where Burke's contrivance broke loose. It made a crater twenty feet across. It could not be examined because it was covered with frost. Burke had the devil of a time recovering it. But he needed it badly, especially since the Russian probe had gone out from Earth. He explained that it was a shipment to his plant, which had fallen out of an airplane, but the owner of the ploughed field was dubious. Burke had to pay him a thousand dollars to get him to believe. That night he had his recurrent dream again. The fluting signals were very clear. End of chapter 3